Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host... Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. The attack on Saudi Arabia's oil facilities has tensions redlining in the Persian Gulf, with Riyadh and Washington pointing the finger of blame at Iran. Joining The Crisis Next Door to talk about the development is retired Ambassador Gerald Firestein, Director of Gulf Affairs and Government Relations at the Middle East Institute. He served as U.S. Ambassador to Yemen from 2010 to 2013. Ambassador Firestein, thank you for joining The Crisis Next Door. Pleasure to be with you today, Jason. The attack on Saudi Arabia's oil facilities has tensions quite high right now, and the U.S. and Saudi Arabia say that the missiles and drones did come from Iran. Now, why would Iran do this if that's the case? Well, it would appear from, uh, from what we're seeing right now that this is the latest in a series of increasingly provocative attacks on um, oil infrastructure in in the region, beginning with uh, with the uh, the attacks on several uh, oil uh, tankers uh, in the spring, uh, and then uh, an attack uh, on a Saudi oil pipeline, uh, and now we have this. And uh, remember that uh, that uh, the Iranians were quite blunt. In saying that if they, uh, if the United States uh, was going to try to reduce their ability to export oil to zero, uh, then they would uh, retaliate and uh, prevent other states in the region from exporting. And this would seem to be uh, part of that series of increasingly aggressive steps on their part to uh, to challenge. Uh, the entire uh, oil industry in the region. The Iranians have been credited in many quarters of being experts at dialing up tensions without going too far. Is that still the case after these attacks? Well, it's a good question, and uh, and clearly they are um, they are on the red line if they haven't actually crossed the red line. And this is uh, this is a, a good question. It's actually a question uh, that Donald Trump is going to have to answer uh, because uh, if uh, if they continue to uh, take these provocative steps without any uh, kind of serious U.S. retaliation, uh, they will simply be encouraged to uh, to go another step farther. I think there have been some expectations that the U.S. would have struck Iran almost immediately after these attacks, yet we're seeing a pretty deliberate case being built by Saudi Arabia and the U.S. What do you think is going on here? Do you think President Trump is not exactly willing to go to war with Iran? Oh, I think that's a big part of it. I think that very clearly the last thing that Donald Trump wants is a war with Iran. And uh, and absolutely, I think that you can say that the Saudis and the Emiratis also uh, have no 
a real desire to see the tension in the Gulf turn into a shooting war uh, because they understand that they're likely to be uh, among the first uh, the first victims of of that conflict. So uh, so this is you know the calculation, and I think that you know as the Trump administration tries to uh, to calibrate what its next step will be uh, in responding to these Iranian provocations. The question that they have to be asking themselves is, okay, if we take this step, what do we do next? What is what is um, our our play tomorrow? Uh, not just what can we do today? Is this a Pandora's box? Hit Iran, and all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose across the Middle East, possibly including Israel and the potential of overseas terror attacks in the U.S. and Europe. Uh, well, that's got to be that's got to be part of the calculation. That's got to be part of the question uh, that they are trying to figure out. Uh, again, if you go down that uh, that path, where does the path lead you to? Uh, does it uh, does it send a strong enough signal to the Iranians uh, that they're going to pay a price for these provocations, or does it open the door to a much broader conflict? Uh, with un- unforeseeable consequences. Are there military options for the U.S. in Saudi Arabia without hitting Iran directly, for instance, hitting Iranian proxies in other countries like Syria, Iraq, or Yemen? Well, certainly uh, those might be uh, part of the calculations, but again, I think that the question would be, uh, okay, if you do that, then what? Uh, can you hit the Houthis harder than they're already being hit? Probably not. The Israelis are already carrying out uh, uh, a pretty uh, open uh, tax on Iranian infrastructure, Iranian uh, facilities in Syria and Lebanon and Iraq. Uh, so what do you do after that? And, and again, what is the Iranian response to all of these? Is it, uh, is it simply to back off uh, and uh, not pursue this course any further? Or is it to double down and perhaps expand the conflict to include U.S. military uh, forces in uh, U.S. military forces in the region, or alternatively to go after uh, Israel and perhaps open up another front in the conflict. This is happening while there's a change at a key office in Washington after John Bolton was sacked as National Security Advisor, and the president has named hostage envoy Robert O'Brien as the next National Security Advisor. How big of a factor is this change when it comes to the calculus with Iran? Well, it's very interesting because, of course, uh, just a, f- a few days ago, you know, just before uh, the uh, the upcake uh, attack, uh, the uh, the question that was being asked here in Washington was whether John Bolton's departure from uh, the White House meant that uh, Donald Trump was going to be pursuing a diplomatic initiative. Uh, there had been a lot of talk about uh, about the possibility of a Trump Rouhani uh, meeting in New York when they're both there for the opening of the UN General Assembly next week. Uh, there had been uh, reporting uh, that uh, perhaps there were conversations in the White House about offering the uh, Iranians some kind of sanctions relief uh, in order to lure them back to the negotiating table. Uh, and so, uh, you know, so things uh, after Bolton's departure seem to be moving in a direction of 
a more focus on diplomacy and less focus on maximum pressure. Uh, but uh, but the events of uh, of the last few days have reversed course yet again, and now uh, Robert O'Brien is going to be walking into a very difficult and very complex uh, uh, situation as he takes over the reins as national security advisor. The U.S. is saying that more sanctions will be coming to Iran this after max pressure. How much more can the U.S. do, and what's your opinion of maximum pressure? Has that failed to work, given where we are right now? Well, uh, those are both uh, very good questions. It's not clear uh, what uh, is left to be sanctioned uh, in Iran, uh, how much more uh, the administration can do. Uh, it's uh, it's not at all clear that there's very much left in the cupboard uh, as far as additional sanctions are concerned, and uh, and the Iranians are clearly um, in uh, in a, a position where uh, they are going to uh, respond to maximum pressure uh, with a pressure campaign of their own, um, and so uh, so far it has not achieved what uh, we understood. Uh, Donald Trump's objective to be, which is to force Iran to come back to a negotiation and to offer more than they offered uh, in the uh, JCPOA talks that ended in 2015. I've seen arguments that Iran attacked these Saudi facilities as a message to the Gulf states that if it can't export its oil under sanctions, then those states will also feel some pain in their oil exports. Do you think that's true? And if so, would it be effective in getting the Saudis to reduce support for the max pressure campaign on Iran? Um, uh, I think that the Iranians have been uh, very uh, direct and, and public in saying exactly that, that they are not going to suffer the consequences of maximum pressure on their own. And so uh, you, you have to look at, uh, at this as, as a, uh, a clear signal to Saudi Arabia and, uh, and the other exporting states in the region uh, that they are vulnerable to uh, attack uh, and that even a facility like Upcake, uh, which is uh, probably about as secure a facility as you can find in the region, is not invulnerable. Uh, these, um, you know, all of these facilities uh, can, uh, can be uh, hit and, uh, and I think that the Iranians are, are clear. Where that leaves the Saudis, not entirely clear, uh, but up until now, both the Saudis and the UAE have been uh, very cautious in their responses to these provocations and, again, uh, are, are wary of uh, pushing things in a direction that is going to make them an even bigger target, particularly uh, uh, there are cities, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Riyadh itself, Dahran, uh, all can be hit by Iranian missiles uh, with, uh, with really serious consequences. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the attacks on Saudi Arabia's oil facilities with retired Ambassador Gerald Firestein, Director of Gulf Affairs and Government Relations at the Middle East Institute. He served as U.S. Ambassador to Yemen from 2010 to 2013. You mentioned the steady escalation from attacks on tankers in the Strait of Hormuz to the attack on the Saudi oil facilities. 
Will Tehran escalate further if there isn't a powerful response from the U.S. and Saudi Arabia? Well, it depends on how the U.S. responds. And, and again, um, I think that, you know, that the interesting thing here is that, to a certain extent, both sides have an interest in finding a way back to a negotiation. I don't think that either side sees that this, um, uh, that this uh, tit-for-tat uh, uh, retaliation between maximum pressure and Iranian provocations is actually going to achieve anything. The Iranians want relief from the sanctions. Uh, the U.S. and its uh, partners in the region uh, would like to force uh, Iran to negotiate and to offer greater concessions uh, than they offered in the JCPOA talks. Um, and so both sides need to figure out how uh, how they can uh, get the other side back to the table. And each side is, in a sense, looking for uh, for uh, tactical advantage, so that if the uh, if they do go back to the table, they will be negotiating from a position of strength rather than a position of weakness. Uh, right now, of course. The, uh, the, uh, the, the spiral is escalating up. It's getting more and more difficult uh, to see how you get out of this without actually getting into a, an open conflict. Uh, but uh, if, the, um, if one side or the other begins a de-escalatory uh, strategy of trying to reduce tensions in the region, uh, you might be able to get, uh, get uh, some kind of an agreement on, on how to reopen negotiations. And, of course, we saw at the G7 summit uh, when, uh, when Emmanuel Macron invited uh, Javed Zarif, the Iranian foreign minister, to come to, uh, to, come to Biarritz, um, that the French were very much looking for what those de-escalatory steps might include in order to get the sides talking again. Do you see any other countries besides France having that opportunity to bring the U.S. and Iran a little closer together, for instance, either Russia or China? Well, it's, uh, it's hard to see that, uh, that either the Russians or the Chinese would have, you know, the, the kind of, uh, of credibility that would allow them to really act in a good office's capacity. I think that you're much more likely to see either the French or the Germans or the British uh, playing that kind of a role. Al Jazeera reported that Iran Revolutionary Guard Brigadier General Amir Ali Hazizada said Iran is prepared for full-scale war. He said while neither Iran nor the U.S. wants war, there could be a misunderstanding in the field where each side's forces come in close contact. How big of a worry is that, a misunderstanding leading to war? Well, I think that if it does end up in an open conflict, that's the most likely scenario. Uh, that, uh, again, I think he's absolutely right. Neither the U.S. nor Iran is looking for a fight. Uh, both sides, I think, recognize what the uh, implications of that might be, the negative implications. Uh, but uh, when, you're in, uh, when you're in close contact like we are right now, uh, the threat of a miscalculation has to be uh, has to be there. You know, it has to be taken into consideration. Saudi Arabia and Iran are rivals for many reasons, perhaps none more so than their respective roles in the four-year-old war in Yemen. Syria may get more attention from the world, 
But the devastation has been just as grim in Yemen, where the Saudis, allied with the United Arab Emirates, until that Gulf state started pulling its troops out, have been battling the Houthi rebels backed by Iran. How key have the Houthis been for Tehran as an instrument against U.S. sanctions on Iran? Well, I, I I don't really think that the Houthis have been instrumental. And, you know, of course, one of the interesting uh, issues here is um, the fact that the Houthis uh, claimed responsibility for the attack on Upcake as they claimed responsibility for a previous attack on an Iranian, uh, on a uh, Saudi pipeline, even though the evidence seems to point in a different direction. And the fact of the matter is that the Houthis probably were not uh, responsible for those attacks. So the question remains, why would the Houthis uh, be claiming responsibility for something that, in fact, they didn't do, uh, whether they did that at the request of the Iranians or whether they did that as a way of increasing uh, the uh, the international uh, perception of, of their own uh, military capabilities? Hard to say. Uh, but, uh, uh, but the Houthi, you know, the Houthis are pretty much internally focused on the Yemen conflict. They have launched, uh, undoubtedly, they have launched attacks across the way into Saudi Arabia uh, in, an, in an attempt, really, uh, to try to force the Saudis to negotiate with them uh, on ending the conflict in, inside of Yemen. But they don't have much reach beyond, beyond that particular issue. Are the Houthis becoming the Hezbollah of the Arabian Peninsula? Well, they may like to think so, uh, and I think that that's one of the reasons that the Saudis have taken the uh, strong position on uh, on the conflict in Yemen that they've taken, uh, and uh, and and so you know I think that pretty clearly uh, the Saudi uh, engagement in Yemen is not going to stop until uh, until they are satisfied that. They are not going to end up in a situation on their southern border like the situation that Israel faces on its northern border. And how is that fight going for Saudi Arabia? Here we are four years later, and they're, they're still battling the Houthis in this grim struggle. Well, the, 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 uh, the conflict is uh, pretty much stalemated on the military side and on the political side. There hasn't been much progress since, uh, uh, since Martin Griffiths got a, a very limited agreement uh, from the parties in uh, in December in Stockholm, uh, and so uh, there's not much movement either way. And and of course, uh, some of the internal uh, developments inside of Yemen, uh, particularly in the south between the Hadi government and the Southern Transition Council, uh, probably make uh, make it more difficult for Martin Griffiths to convince the Houthis uh, that they should negotiate a political deal. Uh, uh, right now. The attacks on the processing facilities, along with prior drone attacks in Saudi Arabia launched by the Houthis in Yemen, have really highlighted the vulnerability of the Saudi petro-economy. Can Riyadh do anything to protect itself better, or is this its reality so long as it has boots on the ground in Yemen and it's locked in confrontation with Iran? Well, I think that uh, that the attack on Upcake uh, is a demonstration uh, that uh, just about any facility is going to be vulnerable to this kind of an attack. I'm not sure uh, that even if a similar attack were to to target, you know, U.S. oil facilities in Houston, 
that we would do any better in uh, in guarding against it. I think that these are extremely difficult to defeat, uh, and uh, the reality is that as long as the situation remains as tense as it is, as it is uh, that uh, that the vulnerabilities of these facilities are going to be a present threat, not only to Saudi Arabia and the other states in the Gulf, uh, but really to the entire global energy uh, market uh, and to the global economy. And the world awaits the next move in this very complex and dangerous development. Ambassador Feierstein, thank you so much for joining us on The Crisis Next Door. Thank you, and it was a pleasure talking to you. We've been joined by retired Ambassador Gerald Feierstein, Director of Gulf Affairs and Government Relations at the Middle East Institute. He served as U.S. Ambassador to Yemen from 2010 to 2013. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.